0: Hello and welcome to One More Time, a podcast sponsored by the University of Illinois Bands. I am the host of the podcast, Sean Smith. We are bringing you a special episode, what we will call episode 1.5. We hope to release short episodes like this in the middle of our monthly offerings that we will call mini bands. These mini bands will often consist of material that was cut from the regular episode for one reason or another, Uh, but on occasion we'll also have some new content. These episodes will be more relaxed and less story-driven than our regular monthly episodes because of this, but will still be full of information. This miniband will contain the uncut recordings from our first episode. We had so many knowledgeable guests that came on our show that we wanted to make sure that their information was available beyond just the two minutes or five minutes they got on our show. So today you will hear from Gunnery Sergeant Kira Wharton of the Marine Band, who will talk more about the first performances of the Marine Band. Professor Larry Dwyer from Notre Dame, who has a lot of information on the beginnings of that program and their uh, first offerings, and some other firsts. You'll also hear more from Gary Smith, who has more information on ABA. You will have the full conversation between Barry Hauser and John Pasquale about the first fight song. And Scott Schwartz will give you more on Sousa's first concert. I hope you find a lot of this information really interesting. And we hope you will join us for our next episode on November 15th, which will be about athletics and band.
1: On July 11th, 1798, President John Adams signed an act of Congress that created the United States Marine Corps. The legislation established both the Corps of Marines and a group of musicians comprised of 32 drums and fifes a drum major, and a fife major. In addition to creating the world's finest fighting force, President Adams unknowingly created what would become the President's own United States Marine Band. Of these original fifers and drummers, many were deployed on warships or sent to Marine Corps posts to provide music for the Marines who were stationed there. The more versatile and talented musicians were retained in Philadelphia by the Commandant of the Marine Corps, to provide music for headquarters as well as the federal government. When the nation's capital moved from Philadelphia to Washington in 1800, Marine Corps headquarters and the Marine Band moved with it. Lacking a permanent barracks in Washington, D.C., the Marines temporarily camped on the grounds which had been selected for the National University. The band's first public performance in the new capital took place on August 21, 1800, just north of where the Lincoln Memorial is now. This area was then known as Camp Hill, or Peter Hill, near E Street between 23rd and 25th Streets. The performance was recorded in a journal entry by Mrs. Anna Thornton. There is no mention of repertoire or instrumentation, only that she went to the hill to hear the band, which was playing at the tents which are fixed on the ground intended for a university. Just ten days after this performance, Marine Corps Commandant William Ward Burroughs wrote to Lt. Edward Hall, direct him to purchase two clarinets, a bassoon, two French horns, and a bass drum for the band. With the band's arrival in Washington, D.C., came new duties and, more importantly, a new venue. The President's mansion, today known as the White House, was ready to be occupied by November 1800, and President Adams invited the Marine Band to perform at the first major public event held there, the New Year's Day Reception on January 1, 1801. In less than two and a half years, the Marine Band had developed from a group of fifers and drummers to an ensemble of musicians performing harmony music. While this was the Marine Band's first performance at the White House, it was far from its last. While Adams gave the band its charter, our third president gave the band its identity. Thomas Jefferson was an excellent amateur musician, a lover of fine music, and he performed chamber music frequently with his friends. He called music the favorite passion of my soul and collected an extensive library of music preserved at the University of Virginia Library in Charlottesville. His love of music led him to take special interest in the Marine Band. Jefferson asked the band to perform at his White House reception on July 4, 1801. Margaret Bayard Smith, wife of the publisher of the National Intelligencer, attended the reception and later wrote to her sister, Marshall Music soon announced the arrival of the Marine Corps, who in due military form saluted the president, accompanied by the president's march, played by an excellent band attached to the Corps. After undergoing various military evolutions, the company returned to the dining room, and the band from an adjacent room played a succession of fine patriotic airs. The band performed for every New Year's Day and Independence Day reception at the White House during Jefferson's two terms as president. An account of the New Year's Day reception in 1809 provides a glimpse of the day's festivities and the band's role. A large crowd nearly filled the house and the band had to compete for space. Catherine Mitchell, a guest at the event, wrote, On our arrival at the castle, we found the room so crowded that it was with difficulty you could squeeze through from one to another. An exquisite band of music played at intervals martial, patriotic, and enlivening airs which reverberated through the spacious dome. It was in the late 1830s or early 1840s that regular public concerts by the Marine Band began on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol, starting a tradition that continues today. Also, weekly public concerts on the White House grounds began no later than the summer of 1841 during the administration of President Tyler. An article found in a Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania newspaper stated, The music of the Marine Band in the grounds of the President's house last evening was very fine. The instruments that were used included flutes, E-flat and B-flat clarinets, trumpets, including the new valved trumpet, French horns, trombones, offaclides, bass horns, and percussion instruments. Concerts during the administration of President Taylor were described as wide-open gatherings where citizens could walk in freely and move about without restriction. The president could often be found strolling the grounds and was happy to greet all who cared to meet him. President Lincoln frequently attended Marine Band performances, but the distraction that his presence created often interfered with his opportunity to enjoy the music. F.B. Carpenter, in his book, The Inner Life of Abraham Lincoln, Six Months at the White House, wrote, One Saturday afternoon, when the lawn in front of the White House was crowded with people listening to the weekly concert of the Marine Band, The President appeared on the portico. Instantly, there was a clapping of hands and clamor for a speech. Bowing his thanks and excusing himself, he stepped back into the retirement of the circular parlor, remarking to me with a disappointed air as he reclined upon the sofa, I wish they would let me sit out there quietly and enjoy the music.
2: The University of Notre Dame was founded in 1842 uh, by Father Edward Soren, who was a Holy Cross priest from France, and uh, when they came here, the first building they built was uh, the the main building that had the Golden Dome on it, and the second building they built was uh, the church, and the third building they built was the music hall, so... um, uh apparently, for some reason, Father Soren felt that having a band on campus was important uh, for school spirit, uh, maybe to have a group to play for, you know, events such as, you know, graduations and uh, uh, masses and, you know, various things like that. So... Uh, the history that we've been able to find through the archives is that in 1845 they started giving lessons, music lessons, to students at the university. And by 18 by commencement of that school year, 1846, the band actually played for the commencement. So we date the band from 1845-46 school year which seems to make it the uh, uh oldest uh university band <clears throat> uh in the United States at least it's been in continuous existence to me that's kind of a surprising thing when you look at the fact that you know universities like say Harvard were around maybe 200 years earlier and you would think they would have had a band but but I guess um you know, I'm sure they had some sort of music program, but probably it was more along the lines of orchestral sort of things. And, uh, and bands just really hadn't come into their own. So I, we think that Father Soren probably had grown up in France where there was a tradition of military bands, and so he figured that's what would fit at Notre Dame. Most of the other university bands started getting formed Apparently, in in the 1880s, 1890s, around that era, because of maybe a couple things that came together. One was the vast popularity of John Philip Sousa's band, uh, and the second thing was the rise of college football, uh, which basically began around uh, 1880. Uh, at Yale, and then rapidly spread across the East Coast, and then to the Midwest, and then ultimately to other sections of the country. So, so it seems like most of the other uh, college bands were formed maybe you know around 1890, 1900, something like that. So, Notre Dame's band was in existence, you know, for about 50 years before that. So, it, it's kind of an interesting
0: fact and so the the very first time you had a marching band on the field, do you know what it you know what what did it look like uh, What did they play anything about that
2: uh not for sure uh, uh, according to the history we have the first football game at Notre Dame was played in eighteen eighty seven uh when the University of Michigan came down to the campus here and actually came down a couple days earlier, uh, I, I mean football at that time was nothing like the way it is now with the, the huge stadiums and and giant crowds and everything. It was basically a club sport and Michigan came down a couple days before the game uh, because they wanted to teach the Notre Dame Football Club actually what the rules of the game were and show them how to play. and. So, they spent a couple of days kind of giving tutorials and then they played the game. Uh, the story is that the band went out and played at that very first football game, but uh, we're thinking they probably just stood around on the sidelines or sat in the bleachers, uh, played, you know, some of the uh, traditional marches that may have been you know, in existence at that time. Uh, the Notre Dame Victory March uh, was written in 1908. Uh, Michigan's uh, school song, The Victors, was written in eight, 10 years before, in 1898. Uh, one of the interesting things th- that I've observed about uh, that is that uh, the victors, has no syncopation at all. It's you know, it's basically all on the beat da 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 da. You know, it's it's very straightforward. Whereas the victory march has a lot of syncopation. Da 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 da. And I I have a just kind of an historical feeling that this might have been a cultural influence because Ragtime music became a craze in the United States starting in 1899, the year after The Victors was written. And, of course, ragtime music featured syncopation. Uh, the Victory March was written by a couple of Notre Dame graduates, uh, John and Michael Shea. They had actually graduated in 1904 and 1906, but they had heard you know, other schools like Michigan and um, uh, starting to play fight songs, so they endeavored to write one for Notre Dame, and uh, and did so. And it had a lot of a lot of syncopation in it. I don't think they were certainly trying to write a ragtime piece, but I think they might have been uh, influenced just by the sounds of all the music around them, which at that time a lot of the popular music was ragtime. And so I think that's why syncopation is highly featured in Notre Dame's victory march. Uh, I want to say, and you you probably have the information, I'm trying to think when uh, Thatcher Guild wrote uh, The (laughs) Illinois Loyalty in 1906, but uh, I'd have to look that up. uh, Yeah, I I believe you're right. Yeah, but but around that uh, same time, and you notice that that also has syncopation. Hmm. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, so uh, it seems like... uh, these the school songs that were written after the ragtime craze had had begun, oftentimes featured syncopation, and the ones that uh, you know were written before that typically didn't. So that's it's kind of an interesting uh, fact for the
0: musicologists to work on, I guess. <laughs> so after that initial um, that initial football game, how did the marching band evolve from there? Well, I'm not totally sure, because we don't have a lot of photographs from
2: that era. What I can tell you is we the earliest photograph we have of the Notre Dame band is from 1870, and then there are numerous photographs after that. Um, and in 1870, uh, the band was basically playing uh, Civil War-era uh, instruments, instruments. You know, and you've seen photographs of of them. Uh, Some of them, you know, the cornets looked about, they actually called it a cornet band at that time. Uh, But, uh, you know, there were alto horns and and trombones and tubas, which were were not at all sousaphones yet, but were, you know, kind of similar to to concert tubas, maybe a little bit skinnier, but... um, uh, in the pictures we have from the late 1800s, it appears to be a group, I've I've counted the number of people in the pictures, it's anywhere from about 17 to oh, about 26 or 27 uh, people. So you know, on average, you know maybe two dozen uh, band members all together. Uh, This was all guys of course, because at that time Notre Dame was an all-male university. So um so when they played, obviously, uh, I don't think that they were doing, uh, you know, field formations at that time uh, at all. The Notre Dame band really started to get larger in the 1920s when two things coincided. One was uh, uh, Coach Newt Rockney, who started. Uh, You know, winning champion national championships with uh, the football team and taking the team to the East Coast and West Coast so that it became nationally known. And at the same time, we had a a really great band director, Joseph Casasanta, uh, who wrote several uh, Notre Dame school songs, wrote The Alma Mater, uh, wrote Hike Notre Dame down the line when the Irish backs go marching by, and actually rewrote the Victory March that uh, had been done in 1908. We we actually have the sheet music from the original Victory March, and it's kind of a long, meandering song written in kind of a 19th century march style with little interludes and break strains and all kinds of things. It goes on for about four or five minutes. Altogether, and Casa Santa took it and just tightened it up into a two-strain march, the way it's heard uh, today, you know, a first strain and then a trio, both of which are repeated, and um, wrote a really good arrangement of it, which we still use today. And so with both those things happening in the 1920s, uh, the the Victory March uh you know, started along with the football team to get nationally recognized as, as a, you know, great sports songs. Uh, inter- interestingly, uh, it was written in 1908. Another great sports song was also written in 1908, uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. So that was, something about that year must have been a very good year for sports, I guess, uh, both football and baseball. And um, so... I don't have pictures. We have pictures of the the band standing for a photograph on the steps of a, of the main building uh, in the nineteen twenties, and it looks like they, um, you know, had about a hundred members uh, at that time. And uh, in the 1930s, we have photographs of them doing field formations. Um, for example, spelling out the word Irish and uh, forming a shamrock—a picture of a, you know, the outline of a shamrock on the field. So they were were doing those kind of picture formations. Obviously, uh, at that time, I'm I, I've heard some people say that Notre Dame was an innovator in doing picture formations. I really I can't say that definitively because I would think that other bands must have been doing similar things. At the same time, maybe earlier, who knows. Uh, but definitely in the 1930s, they, they were doing those things uh, on the football field. So uh, following that, the bands, the size of the Notre Dame band stayed at around a hundred uh, up through uh, the mid-1960s, actually. And uh, then in 1970, uh, we started uh, bringing into the band women from St. Mary's College, uh, which uh, is an all-female college. And so that uh, immediately started increasing the size of the band, so it grew to about 150 or so in the early 1970s. In 1972, Notre Dame as a university went co-ed, uh, so that uh, that again helped to boost the number of of members of the band. And quite honestly, since uh, you know students uh, to some extent choose what instruments they play on the basis of gender, uh, it provided the band with some more oboe players and flute players and clarinet players. Um, than they had had prior to that. Although an interesting factoid is that the very first woman in the Notre Dame band, uh, a, a Lady named Rosemary Krog, who is still alive, uh, she played sousaphone. So uh, it was just kind of a funny thing. Uh, the, the band director at the time, Robert O'Brien, thought that when he got uh, some women in the band, then he'd have an oboe player, and the first one to show up uh, played sousaphone.
3: early part of the 20th century. The concert bands, of course, were extremely popular, traveling all over all over the world, matter of fact, performing concerts and, you know, more so than orchestras and uh, popularity with the masses uh, was extremely uh, impressive, large audiences, and and so the the musical uh, quality and standards of uh, the concert bands was something that elevated them to a new level of appreciation in music, uh, because prior to that time, bands were only used for ceremonial occasions like uh, parades and military events and, uh, uh, other, you know, different types of athletic events and so forth. So the, the movement of the concert band movement really uh, really sparked a great interest in this. And, and, and of course, when uh, Edwin Frankel goldman
1: who had one of the greatest
3: uh, bands of all, the Goldman Band, which was the headquartered in New York, uh, he began to discuss the, the legitimate aspects of the concert band movement with uh, all the, the great band people at that time, including Sousa and Harding from University of Illinois and so forth. And they felt that something needed to be done to sort of increase the momentum of the popularity of the concert band movement. And so there was just a lot of uh, discussion and communications between several of the professional band conductors at that time. And, uh, and I think the, the sort of the ABA concept was uh, sort of started when, when they had a meeting in Chicago. Um, I think it was in the summer of 1928 in Chicago, and mm-hmm. Harding was part of that to, to, to sort, of, sort of discuss all of this, uh, you know, what can be done and so forth. And that's sort of when uh, the thought of uh, forming something like the ABA was, was uh, brought up. Um, in fact, Harding was quoted as saying, uh, we conceived the idea of creating an ABA for the purpose of furthering the interest of outstanding American bandmasters and of interesting composers, arrangers, and music publishers in the wind band music it would be the aim of the ABA to unite the concerted efforts to influence the best composers to write for the wind band. Uh, Sousa was also involved in the concept and so forth. Uh, Then I think it was in 1929 in New York when uh, Goldman actually called a meeting together to sort of uh, create, uh, I think that's when they created the Constitution and and, and uh, you know, standardization of instrumentation and a lot of things occurred in that in that particular meeting, including the idea of having a national convention every year. <clears throat> and uh, so I think the first convention was in 1930 with, uh, in March in Ohio, Middleton, Ohio. And um, the charter members were there, of course, and that's really where the ABA really got its real start. And, of course, um, it it continued to flourish and grow and coming closer and closer to what the modern ABA is much like until the war in 1942, of course, and then the uh, conventions were canceled. And uh, I think it was in Elkhart, 1947, is when um, it started up again, and that's when sort of all the movement, uh, what you see going on today, really... uh, uh, the whole concept of selecting, you know, outstanding band conductors and so forth in the national convention every year, and so the the ABA sort of was a metamorphosis a that started way back in discussion in 1928, and of course really got its momentum going in 1947 to to such a degree what you see uh, today uh, in the ABA. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. But uh, the real mastermind behind that was Edwin Franco-Goldman, and assisted by A.A. A. Harding. And um, there, were, there were some others, uh, Pryor, Simon, Hayward, Victor, Benter, and Sousa, of course. And uh, the original charter members included uh, Goldman, Charles Benter, J.J. J. Gagnier, Victor Grable, Austin Harding, uh, Richard Hayward, uh, Charles O'Neill, Arthur Pryor, and Frank Sermon. They were the charter members, actually, uh, for the first APA. (laughs) Of course, now I think there's well over 300 members.
4: Well, this is one of those things that I think when I got the job here, I was told that we had the first college fight song. And then, obviously, through a lot of homework and research and Just being cautious with how that is all being portrayed. I think it's kind of a a gray area, and I'm sure my colleague Dr. Pasquale will will weigh on this as well. You know, it's interesting because I guess a lot of this goes back to Notre Dame was the first college marching band, and I thought for sure that they would have had the first fight song, but I found out later that the Victory March wasn't uh, written until 1908. I know Illinois Loyalty was written in 1906, and then obviously I thought a little bit about some of our institutions out east. You know, you look at Harvard and all of those schools that have been in existence for a very long time, so I thought for sure that they would have claimed to, to the first. found out that Boston College, their fight song, For Boston, was written in 1885, but the marching band wasn't founded until 1919, so... The only thing that I can think of, and I'll, I'll wait for Dr. Pasquale to weigh in about Hill to the Victors, but the only thing that I can think of is because of the university establishing the marching program and the, you know, the band program here, that that's maybe why our predecessors said that we have the claim to the first college fight song.
5: You know, I always learn something new when I talk to the infamous. Professor Barry Elhouser. <laughs> like, I had no idea about Notre Dame being the first marching band. Honestly, I thought both came from the University of Illinois. Uh, being the first college band program, I just assumed. And honestly, I'm embarrassed to say I learned something new this morning, so that's, that's awesome. In terms of the fight song dates, the victors here, which actually most people um, think the name of our fight song is actually entitled Hail to the Victors, but that's actually not correct. So the title itself is just the Victors. Mm. Um, yeah, common misconception. Yeah. But um, So there you go. Uh, it was composed in 1898 by a student here at Michigan, Louis Elbell. And um, it was written for an exciting uh, victory over the University of Chicago. And the fight song at the time. Now, this isn't really the fight song for the school, but um, which is which could certainly be argued. But um, they would play the tune, uh, They'll Be a Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight, which was actually a pretty famous song here. Um, I don't know if it, was, if it was technically the School's Fight song or if they just played it because they liked it or something. But um, so Elville wanted to write something a, a bit more energetic to kind of match the win over Chicago. And out of that, he wrote the fight song, The Victors, which is actually based on the trio of the Spirit of Liberty March. And so that's how it happened. Now, in terms of who composed what first, I I honestly don't know. But um, just from the dates, which I just heard from Barry, perhaps 1898 was technically written first. However, The Victors wasn't always our college fight song. So perhaps there are two separate questions going on. One, who actually wrote it first and then and then actually who's had the longest uh, standing fights on. That's certainly not us, because there's a time period in there um, where we were not using the victors, so that could uh, possibly affect some things.
4: Well, I think a lot of this goes back to you know being part of the Big Ten, and I know other conferences can maybe argue with this statement, but because this is really primarily where, where the band movement began, Yes, Notre Dame's first college marching band, University of Illinois had the first comprehensive band program, but you look at all the other institutions, part of the Big Ten, a lot of the beginnings really stemmed out of of the Big Ten conference, I feel, and really influenced a great deal of of people throughout the country. And obviously with that, in terms of your band program, it's the music that goes along with that. Um, You look at the victors you look at we're loyal to you illinois you look at the notre dame victory march all those things those are school songs that are utilized by so many high school programs throughout the country um, probably more so than some of the others and you know we can say the same thing about some of our other big 10 school songs that are just so much more well known and probably played by a number of, of high school ensembles i think the interesting part for illinois was that Yes, Illinois Loyalty was the first school song for us, 1906. But five years later, Wawa, which we kind of call our fight song, compared to a school song, what's the difference? I really don't know. Um, But (laughs) Oskiwawa was written in 1911 because they wanted more of a rousing energy when they would score a touchdown and so forth. So interesting that, yeah, there's maybe a claim by some that this is the first or maybe longest played but it still wasn't enough of a rousing piece of music, so that's why Oski Wow Wow came about. Um, I had no but, idea. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, but I think because of the longevity of our conference and just the, the um, great reputation by so many of the collegiate ensembles in the Big Ten, I think that's why a lot of these traditions continue on, and that's what people have just known for the longest time as being part of these institutions.
5: Absolutely. And then um, also, too, it's an oral identity Hmm. of a very large population of people. Uh, For instance, here at Michigan, we have the largest alumni base of any institution in the country. Because of that, they are identified by the song, The Victors. It is something that is a part of their soul. It's a part of their identity. And I think that's why it has lasted so long. And to be honest with you, that's what's happening all across the country. Um, Illinois, Michigan State, Oklahoma, I mean, very famous fight songs. They are famous because they are the identity of the people that have uh, gone to school there. Oftentimes, institutions don't really have a flag. So it's it's the flag equivalent for a country. (laughs) The (laughs) uh, a fight song takes that place, and so I do think it is going to endure because um, one, because it is it's a story, tradition, and legacy, and all all of those things. But most importantly, it's an identity.
6: That was a recording of the U.S. Marine Band um, in 2010 performing Sousa's um, musical character piece, Sheridan's Ride, depicting the October 19th, 1864 battle um, between General Early and General Sheridan during um, America's Civil War. Um, a, a significant battle. Um, with significant losses um, for the North, casualties were 645 compared to the Confederate um, military um, which um, had lost um, 320 um, and a almost doubling of wounded. Um, So why is this so important? Well, um, the, the musical character piece was written in um, November of 1891. Um, The battle itself, 1864, um, Sousa is almost 10 years old. He grows up in um, Washington, D.C. He's well aware of um, the Civil War. He can hear those sounds and battles um, in his backyard. He's well aware of it as a young boy growing up during this era of Civil War, um, did he know much about Mr. Sheridan? Um, probably not, although the, um, the newspaper would have printed up um, a, quite a bit of a story. Um, it was a battle that um, basically caught General Sheridan with his pants down. Um, his troops were at Cedar Creek. Um, he was in Winchester, um, Virginia. Um, having just returned from an extended set of meetings um, in D.C. He spends the night in a hotel in Winchester while his troops sleep on the ground um, and and not really paying a lot of attention to General Early's attempt to basically break through that um, battle line and charge possibly to Washington um, to end that battle. the importance of the battle was that while it started out at 5 a.m., and um, you know, for the first six hours basically, the battle was clearly going to the south's advantage until General Sheridan arrives with his horse Rienzi, who's characterized in this um, musical creation and the story that was written about it as the hero. We play more value, or place more value on General Sheridan and what he did for his troops, when the reality is it's the horse that really is the hero to this entire military battle. Um, Souza actually created this musical um, piece In 1891, it's the second of two musical creations. His first one was the Chariot Race, the Ben-Hur Chariot Race, um, recreating the story that was published in 1880. Um, Sheridan's Ride is basically a a, a story that's um, written up also in 1864, um, and Sousa sets that story to music. Um, and premieres it with the U.S. Marine Band. It's actual second tour um, in 1892. Um, but what's this got to do with his civilian band? Well, he used this um, to basically premiere the start of his civilian band. Mind you, he's he's left the Marine Band. He technically. Um, has formed his civilian band without being released from the Marines yet, so there, there's a lot of other th- information about this, but the bottom line is that he has scheduled the first performance of the civilian band on September 26, 1892. Patrick Gilmore, who is in David Blakely's stable, um, as the primary go-to bandsman, um, you know, Patrick Gilmore, you know, he forms his band in 1858. He eventually joins the Civil War, um, the Massachusetts group, and, and it's quite renowned for it. Um, His main um, claim to fame is the series of concerts that happen after the Civil War, his World Peace Jubilee of 1872. Um, He, in 1873, forms New York's um, 22nd Regimental Band, which becomes world-class. It is the super band of all bands. 1876, he forms his mega um, centennial celebration. Having ensembles, so the orchestras and bands filling that space are a thousand. Those are the performers, not the audience. Um, he's actually brought in for the dedication of the Statue of Liberty in 1886. And then finally, the um, The New York um, celebration, we think of the New York's, you know, New Year's Eve celebration, you know, at the Garden and so forth as being something fairly modern. Well, he's the one that starts it. So you get a sense that Patrick Gilmore is the go-to band. He's the number one band in the Blakely Ensemble. The Sousa band is the number two band. Okay. I guess Sousa was comfortable with that, maybe. Patrick Gilmore dies 2 days before Sousa's band premieres in Plainfield, New Jersey. That's where his band kicks off. Plainfield, New Jersey. Not New York, not Washington D.C. He is in Plainfield, all right? In his concert, all right? Is adjusted so that they do an introductory Memorial to Patrick Gilmore, two days after he died. The work is actually written by Bill Gilmore, but never published. So Sousa arranges it for his band. The title of it, Deaths at the Door, or The Voice of the Departed Soul. And that's how he begins his concert, by a musical tribute to Patrick Gilmore. And then he follows that up with a series of theatrical pieces, selections, written for band. Um, Rossini, um, he does Grieg's Pierre Gintz Suite. He does The Evening Star from Tannhäuser um, with Mr. Antonio Galassi, who's going to come and sing for the band. He's hired. He's coming from Germany, but he's stuck in quarantine, so not even Mr. Galassi is there to sing this great piece by Wagner. Okay, He actually has to have a ringer brought in to sing that one day as Galassi is stuck in quarantine, waiting to be released into the country. He does um, Lucia de Lamor, um, and he brings Marcella Lind, a great operatic singer, to join him. So, you know, this first concert of Sousa's great civilian band is not getting off to a great start, but, you know, he makes the best of it. If you look at the pieces he's included in this concert, we expect a ton of Sousa marches. No. We have Sheridan's Ride, a famous piece that's well received by the Marine Band, all right, and his final Goodbye medley, which we'll talk a bit more. Those are the only two Sousa pieces for this first concert All right Let's talk a bit about the setting All right Plainfield, New Jersey. So what's why is that a, a, a kickoff point All right with well, the reviewer of this concert starts out such an entertainment as that given by Sousa's new Marine band is exceedingly refreshing. Especially is this the case after the nauseating amount of trash which goes upon the stage nowadays to cater to a supposed public taste. That the public taste is not so depraved or vapid is evidenced by the marked contrast in the makeup of the audiences which the trashy performances attract and the fine one that was attracted to the music hall for last night's concert. So clearly, an upper crust crowd is coming to Mr. Sousa's first performance, a performance that was marked by at least one wonderful Italian baritone being stuck in quarantine. Okay, another Reviewer, because Mr. Souza has taken on the practice of introducing encores between each one of the serious pieces, encores like My Mary Green, The Salvation Army March, composed by Gilmore in the summer of 1892, another piece by Gilmore who's now dead, okay, the Southern Patrol, and marching through Georgia. Those are the encores which one reviewer from Elmira, New York, wrote, describes these encores as jolly trash. Of course, none of those encores are Sousa marches, as we've grown to expect, but other people. Okay, So here we've got this character piece, depicting an 1864 battle scene that really becomes then the essence of the concert and a high point for it. The reviewer writes... The selections, however, which won the greatest applause of the evening and received encores which demanded the repetition in part in two instances, the Sheridan's Ride and the Egyptian Trumpets, the repetition being demanded not once but twice as they were well received and clearly gave an indication that Sousa's compositions were important and caught their attention. Of course, by today's standards, if we get an encore, it's usually something splashy like Stars and Stripes, not a repeat of the same piece, and a repeat twice. Okay, We're talking nearly nine minutes worth of music played twice over because the audience demands it. And it goes on, and it really describes the battle scene. Of course, we only played a sample of US Marine Band's performance in 2010. But it gives you a sense of the character of this individual. Um, and quite frankly, we want to think of Mr. Sousa's concerts as always being, you know, things that hit the hit the ball out of the park. All right? And this one did. But the bottom line is this was a test case to determine would Mr. Sousa's civilian band be able to stand up for what Blakely had expected would be equal to Patrick Gilmore's band which had already been working in Blakely's stable of great musicians for several years. So we have a stringer coming in as a backup for essentially what became then the great band post-Gilmore. For future performances, um, the reviewer writes in the Plainfield Press, as each strain concluded. Now, then mind you, this is the final piece. Okay, the piece called the Goodbye Medley, right? a humoresque. The reviewer writes, as right Sousa's humoresque is played. It included every farewell song known to man. Um, Included the soldier's farewell, goodbye sweetheart, how can I leave thee, we're going home to Dixie Toste's, goodbye last rose of summer, comrades, goodbye my honey, I'm gone and many others. This is how he's ending his concert. The reviewer writes, As each strain was concluded, the principal performers with the most serious faces left the stage. The audience was full of merriment, and the performance of almost the last man of Then You'll Remember Me as a bassoon solo finishes Last on the stage were a fife in drum corps, which marched out to the gal I left behind me. Mr. Sousa was left monarch of the empty chairs. One man came back and gravely began Annie Laurie, which was taken up by the rest Appearing from all sides, it was certainly a very unique performance to close out the concert. So, in essence, we think of today's Sousa performance always ending with stars and stripes. And here we have a humoresque, leaving Sousa, the sole man standing on the stage, as they all come back on, playing Annie Laurie. In Irish air. Of course, the last piece for that concert was not Stars and Stripes. That's not written until 1896. The last patriotic song is the Star-Spangled Banner, the National Anthem. Of course, after Stars and Stripes, which was in itself not a successful kickoff early on, we today expect to hear Sousa's Stars and Stripes as the last piece. That is the beginning of Sousa's civilian band. And shortly after that performance, he begins to draw in the soloists, the headliners of Patrick Gilmore's band, into his own as that tradition begins to evolve. I really recommend that everyone take a few minutes to listen to Sheridan's Rides, which is rarely played and includes Gatling guns, machine guns, and everything else, includes cannon as part of its percussion, and begin to understand Sousa's theatrical side as a musical character piece, which is truly underrated, but an absolute delightful piece that everyone should hear. Take a couple minutes. Listen to the U.S. Marine Band and its 2010 performance. You will not be disappointed.